This week on Mobile First, a conversation with Dan Armstrong, Chief Digital Officer at Bank Mobile. And this will be the first of our two-part series of Bank Mobile. I think that uh, the ubiquity of, of mobile around the world and its capability to sort of extend beyond normal infrastructure has been transformative to a lot of people. And I have to say, in working in a lot of strange places, I've learned a lot about people's digestion and use of mobile as a channel. Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways from this episode on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. In this episode, we explore how Dan's observation of countries who are early adopters of technology vis-a-vis the user behavior that they are exhibiting. We inquire if Dan notices any user fragmentation, if they have plans to centralize these channels into one platform and how they plan to go about that, plus what their core model differentiator is uh, that is compared to others in the market. Also, where he sees mobile banking in the near future and the interesting things that may come from it. To introduce our guest today, Dan Armstrong is the Chief Digital Officer for Bank Mobile, America's first completely fee-free mobile-first bank. With mobile banking and financial services, telecommunications, and technology projects in 40-plus countries, Dan brings unique expertise in developing new products, technologies, and distribution strategies that accurately match technology with consumer needs. He has worked on several continents, including Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. And Dan is also bilingual, speaking English and Dutch. Dan, thanks for spending some time with us today. Really excited to, to have you on here and learn a little bit more about Bank Mobile. Yeah, Dan, how about you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I have been traveling in a lot of different countries uh, and glad to be back here in the United States finally after, after so long. Um, I was born here and I left uh, in, in the 90s to go work in, in telco, basically, and do a lot of telco projects. But at some point, I did a lot of telco projects like MVNOs and setting up mobile operators. I did a lot of projects for banks as well to try to fuse the two concepts together. Uh, way before the invention of smartphones or iPhones, trying to fuse those things together was a little bit of a forced match. But we learned a whole lot about mobile banking and people's uh, trust of mobile as a channel to do their banking. and. Uh, I'm glad to be back here in the United States working on that vision, actually making it a, a reality with a mobile first and primarily mobile bank, if you will. Yeah, and there's this, there's this awesome shift taking place with just the different transaction behavior and size of transactions taking place in mobile. And so I'm excited to, to get your insight there and, and kind of that user behavior. And one thing I wanted to touch on that Dan and I had a chance to talk about before we started here is because, Dan, you're so well-traveled and you've experienced uh, mobile, mobile, just in general, in all these different areas around the world, uh, how people reference the word mobile and mobile, where only in the U.S. here and then parts of Canada it's mobile, and then everywhere else it's mobile. That's just kind of an interesting fact I wanted to throw in there for everybody. I, I'm going to try to say mobile because I'm practicing it. It does sound <laughs> sometimes uh, like I'm swallowing my tongue. So um, I think that uh, the ubiquity of of mobile around the world and its capability to sort of extend beyond normal infrastructure has been transformative to a lot of people. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, what can we learn from Europe or or, or the United States and use in in developing economies? But I have to say in working in a lot of strange places throughout China and India and and Central Africa, I've learned a lot about people's digestion and use of mobile as a channel 
that we actually could bring back to Western Europe and in the United States and use as lessons learned from developing markets. Um, and while we're on that topic, maybe could you maybe talk about one or two things that, that you identify that you think would be one of the bigger things we should bring back? A lot of times people are talking about bells and whistles and a whole capability of, of functionalities that, that, that you know you need to actually have a mobile bank account or manage your life with a mobile device or maybe an internet browser. People talk about PFM and financial management tools so you can get your savings goals and all sorts of bells and whistles. But for a substantial portion of the markets that I worked in, like Tanzania or Rwanda or Zambia, Paraguay, just rudimentary access to a bank account that didn't force you to to move between cities to be able to check your balance or uh, force you to um, wait in the line so you could get into a bank to check your balance. Rudimentary basic services that were very transparent and very, very clear as to where your money was and how it was being used for you and how you could easily access it to, for example, move extra money into a savings account to uh, generate interest. Those are the things that we, we learned uh, when we brought these technologies sometimes and behaviors back to uh, Western Europe and the Netherlands, where I lived for a long time, we did a lot of mobile banking projects there. But instead of just doing everything on a little small screen where you think maybe this is a little bit too much information or I'm not digesting it, just getting transparency and clarity, getting alerts and notifications when you want to do things and making sure that people trust the channel as a channel you can bank with uh, was something we didn't necessarily learn in the in Western Europe or, uh, Germany or England when we deployed those services. We learned that from people that really trusted that channel because it's the only way they could actually bank. And then we took that back and, and, and establishing transparency as well as security and the perception of security and the control and in consumers' hand is something we kind of had to learn from maybe doing it wrong in Western Europe and then trying it out in different ways in other parts of the world. And, you know, just based off of just where the technology started and just adoption of the technology, you know, parts of Europe, China, U.S., obviously, we had the technology first, we adopted first. And so the user behavior is, is much more mature than maybe some of these other developing countries. Uh, have you noticed that, you know, even these insights that are coming from these developing countries, are they translating over one for one to these more mature user behaviors? Or are there some that just, you know, don't quite equally translate over? I think we got to be careful here because mobile is not the only thing that you're banking with, right? You have a debit card as well. You have checks in the United States. So when you say the United States is, uh, and, and modern economies have embraced technologies faster than developing markets, you have to actually realize the United States is still using paper checks. That's insane. I mean, there's yeah. many countries in the world where you can't even do such a thing. So the fact that you scan a check with your phone to deposit into your bank account is kind of an antiquated use of technology in the first place, I would have Interesting. to say. Yeah. I mean, we have Magstripe cards here, decade and a half after they were starting to be phased out in other parts of the world with EMV. So the fraud and, and the channel, I mean, I, I see this always in the way that we also had broadband internet, you know. In the United States, we had PSTN dial-up lines for a long time, and, and we had that infrastructure after the war, if you will. Um, and then we sort of leapt to ADSL and, and fiber lines, so then we kind of leapfrogged ahead in terms of broadband access. But if you go to Europe, markets that were bombed during the war, and I'm talking about World War II, had to rebuild a lot of their technology quickly. So they were all using ISDN lines, which were faster lines. So they all kind of waited to upgrade to broadband into it a little bit later because they had this faster infrastructure that was already sort of in place. So it's a little bit back and forth. There's a lot of leapfrogging going on. So I have a feeling that we 
definitely have digested smartphones in a way that uh, not many other countries uh, or markets have done as fast. But then, then again, you have to take a look at Japan, who had proprietary smartphones the half a decade or a decade before we had uh, an iPhone or uh, an Android device in, in hand. They weren't the same kind of smartphones, but certainly they were adopting technology and also NFC contactless payments really years and years before we ever thought about uh, Apple Pay or Android Pay. So Interesting. And so I, I, don't, I want to spend uh, some time getting to know you a little bit, Dan, and, and dig into your, your, your past because a lot of times the origin story shapes your perspective and, and the things that make you great at what you do. And so can you walk us through your past and and all the way from majoring in philosophy to being a market manager, museum designer, to now the the CDO in a digital finance industry, just kind of take us through this this growth path and these pivots that you made along the way, and how that really shapes uh, your perspective today. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, it's a little bit chaotic. I mean, my degree in philosophy, something I really enjoyed, but it was also kind of essentially the lowest amount of requirements you had to do in a specific major. So I could do a lot of other courses in a lot of other areas, uh, economics and psychology. I got a minor in uh, audio engineering and physics. So basically I didn't know what I wanted to do. So that was just kind of a great minimal major where I could actually do a lot of other things. One of my first real jobs was, uh, you know, basically being in a museum and exhibit designer for an architecture company. And that's for like places like the National Park Service or the White House Visitor Center in Smithsonian, wherein you design kind of rooms and stories, text and graphics, artifacts, and, and basically guide individuals through an interpretive exhibit about a subject. And you don't want to get too detailed about it. You certainly don't want to get too light in detail so people don't learn or understand what's going on. So finding that mix of guiding individuals around was critical to that job. So when the web actually happened, I had a couple of friends that were getting involved in the first web design companies you know, back in the day, this is Mosaic and Netscape. I went over to one of these guys because uh, the company I was working for didn't wasn't doing really well actually from a contracting perspective. And I said, this web is going to emerge soon. And I think it's kind of going to be like a museum. You're going to have context you're going to have text, graphics, you're going to have a message on a page. And when you click, you go to another page and you're going to see maybe something else over there. So I think without really a lot of technology background, I might be a really good person to design things on the web because that's kind of what I've been doing. So I spent a lot of time, about five or six years doing that for MCI, Netscape, and a lot of other companies. I did like the first website for Pepsi and first website for Saab and stuff like that. This is early days, very simple kind of websites. But it was very similar to designing exhibits inside museums because that's kind of how the web was structured at that point. There was not really any commerce. Spent a huge amount of time at MCI in Washington, D.C. So at some point, uh, somebody asked me if I wanted to set up internet divisions for another telco called British Telecom in um, in Europe. They were um, reaching out to different car you know, markets and, and buying fixed line operators and launching mobile operators. So I said, what the heck? And I left America for 20 years. So I did a lot of telecommunications work and got involved in a lot of mobile projects as well as MVNOs, like virtual operators that don't have a network. I did some of the first ones in the world. I did a Virgin Mobile in, in Europe. I, I did a, a mobile operator for a media company called Veronica that started Big Brother and a couple other big um, reality television shows. And that whole alternate use of mobile telecommunications, how can you leverage the access that mobile gives you without necessarily having to build a network or build a telco kind of brand became the foundation for how we did a lot of uh, 
mobile financial services in the future. The last MVNO I did was for a, a very large bank in the Netherlands called the Rabobank. It's one of the largest uh, agricultural and community uh, cooperative banks in, in the world. Uh, but they were very interested in innovation and trying to do things in a way that proved to their customers, hey, maybe the future could be this or that. And we started a mobile operator for a bank. So we did an MVNO for the Rabobank in 2005. And that is you get your phone and your SIM card and your voicemail from the bank in the bank branch, which was kind of a crazy concept, especially before smartphones came out. But we did a pretty successful job in smooshing together, if you will, the marketing messages behind mobile and the marketing message behind innovative technology-oriented banking. We did that for about five, six years. Uh, the MVNO lasted for about, I think, nine years in total, pretty successful. Uh, during the last bank recession, they sort of shut it down, if you will, and sort of went back to protecting the core banking assets. But it was very trend-setting kind of activity. When I stopped doing that, it became very clear to the Rabobank, as well as to a number of other banks that I worked for, that a mobile financial services package could be very impactful in developing markets like Rwanda and like Tanzania and like China, where people don't have internet access or they don't have a lot of access to branches. So basically, I went on the road deploying a lot of services for distribution of bank accounts using mobile in a way that we could have never succeeded to in uh, in the Netherlands because everybody already had a bank account and, and a mobile phone. This was really sketching out kind of new ground and, and defining products with different market forces in those in those countries. Sometimes the mobile operator is the most powerful force. Sometimes it's still a government that's in control of a lot of stuff. So you have to kind of find your way through the regulatory frameworks and find a product that works for people, design it, launch it. I mean, in Rwanda, I had to hire DJs to go around village to village to promote mobile banking. So people would go to the concert, hear the music and learn about getting a bank account. And then they would sign up and, and get their debit card right on the street, you know? Interesting. So that's kind of how I got into mobile banking, mobile financial services. Strange kind of path, but it's really always been about sort of deploying technology into the hands of consumers. And, uh, and I'm still lucky to be doing it in a very different way in the United States right now. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. That I mean, for me, the thing that sticks out most is your pivot from museum design to website design and how that just that point in time happened where digital came and you just saw that opportunity and jumped on it. And then you had another point in your timeline where you had that similar experience where you were in, you know, from telecoms to the financial industry, identifying that there was then a pain point in these developing countries and how mobile could then be solving it and how mobile was probably a newer thing at that, at that point, but how that was the best solution given just the circumstances of these, these people. And you had mentioned this earlier, you know, con connecting consumers needs. And so that's, that really shows throughout your, your journey. So uh, being able to pull these points out and have those aha moments is, is really interesting to shape the perspective. To be honest with you as well, it's interesting to, to note, and I don't want to sort of eat my own breakfast here, but mobile <laughs> does, is not going to solve everybody's problem. You know, you want to get a mortgage at some point or you want to go talk to somebody about a problem with your bank account. It's very hard to get that kind of confidence level with with just a phone in front of you. I think millennials and younger individuals probably have a higher predilection for trusting that device as a way to, to deal with their bank life. But still, at some point, you want to know that your money's being taken care of and there's a process there that's a little bit more secure than you could put together yourself. So it has to be part of your relationship with your customer. It could be the primary part, but it could never just be something as monolithic as just uh, accessing your bank account and and living that way forever because your needs change. You need to figure out how to pay for your 
kids to go to school at some point. You need to get a loan on your home improvement project. So there's a pile of things where you might necessarily want to talk to somebody in a different way. And hearing a voice, talking to somebody real is important. But I'm not sure if it's enough of importance to to continue doing banking the old-fashioned way in branches. Right. And it's where is that compromise? And, and as technology evolves and people get more, I think, comfortable and familiar with using their mobile device for this sort of uh, use case. Yeah, I'm excited to see kind of how things evolve there. And so, you know, you you mentioned just recently the problems with this and, and how you're attempting to solve many of them and really understand where these boundaries are. You know, with Bank Mobile, you've got some great ratings, some great uh, reviews in the store. And uh, I know you're working on some some cool stuff behind the scenes right now to have another big rollout. What are some of these main things that you're currently focusing on, these current problems that you're focusing on, and what are some of the solutions that you think are going to be the best fit for the market? Great question, actually, um, because we did enter the market in, in the very early months of 2015, and the vision for delivering mobile-first solutions, but not necessarily just like a prepaid card or a Movin or simple product, which which at that point was c- kind of limited, uh, the vision of our chairman was, hey, let's have a checking account, a savings account and even a line of credit in the hands of people so they don't have to uh, go to payday lenders or, or take out money from their savings to be able to uh, fill the gaps, if you will, uh, people that are being paid on an hourly basis, et cetera. This could be a really very interesting product for people because we don't have to establish branches, which are like a million bucks a pop. So then we can pass on the savings to individuals by not having the infrastructure. So the fee-free concept, uh, the extended uh, interest rates on savings, and also uh, the interchange model that we have for using your debit card. And if you do things like that and direct deposit, we'll make all ATMs for free. That was a very innovative way of thinking about maybe how to change the value that normally banks are extracting from people. I mean, banks normally extract a lot of value in fees, like overdraft fees, stuff like that, you know? Right. We went to market with a an application from a vendor, uh, a nice vendor. The, they, they do a lot of work for a lot of credit unions and banks uh, across the United States. But we quickly realized if we're taking this channel so seriously that it is our primary channel, maybe we need to actually take it a little more seriously than just using a vendor product. We need to innovate. We need to differentiate, do things a little bit differently, make it look more sexy and do things faster. You know, So in May of 2015, we set up an entire software services division. Myself with, the, with my colleague, the CTO, Kirk Barrett, managed this division. We have a lot of developers, a digital design lab, BSAs, uh, a lot of testing individuals and, and QA managers to get software out the door. So we're just at the end of that process to completely relaunch that platform in a new and innovative way and take the responsibility for that innovation in-house, which is scary. Not many banks are doing that. But if you really take this channel very seriously, you need to put your money where your mouth is. And that's that's kind of what we've been working on. At the same time, you you can't establish a brand in the United States without very, very deep pockets, you know, something like 25 to 32 to 35 million bucks just to establish a nationwide brand, uh, give or take a Super Bowl ad. So for us to establish a platform that was also kind of white labelable, uh, that could be sold via other channels, um, that could be rebranded and repositioned and still offer a core checking and savings account and a line of credit for individuals and maybe more complicated products in the future like auto loans and mortgages and things like that could be also a tool that other individuals, maybe telcos or retailers, would like to offer, also offer their uh, customers. So we have a white labelable platform. We've, we've done a couple deals already with white label customers that would like to sell bank accounts in their, um, 
in their stores, if you will, powered by Bank Mobile because we own the charter and we take care of the FDIC insurance and, and the security and safety of that bank account as well as the transactional capabilities. And one of the things we did was also uh, make this acquisition of our, our colleagues uh, uh, from the higher one business, which is student refund disbursement, where they're originating about 500,000 new checking accounts because people need an account to place their student refunds from the Department of Education under the lending sources into to be able to spend for books and things like that. A lot of younger people don't really have a serious checking account. They sort of inherited checking accounts or savings accounts from their parents. So that's another kind of uh, distribution strategy. So we're rebranding our bank mobile platform for them, rebranding it for families and businesses in the future. So we've kind of come up with a strategy that focuses on what we do best, which is to control the experience and enable capabilities, but not necessarily interested in conquering the world with our own brand. Gotcha. So with these these other ways to enter into this platform and, you know, you have Bank Mobile Vive and you have Bank Mobile and it sounds like there's also the white labeling uh, component. Are you noticing any fragmentation to the users or is it really easy for a user to go from Bank Mobile Vibe to Bank Mobile? And uh, I guess, you know, me not being as familiar to that that pathway, just curious if you if you've noticed any of that or if you have a plan to kind of centralize that into one platform or what what that strategy is there that's a spectacular question and of course it's a question we have to figure out week by week as we're doing it but gotcha what, what i do know is that we're not going to be all things to all people so saying you know flush wells fargo and become a bank mobile customer where everything you need that's that's a bit too too far so for example the bank mobile vibe platform for students doesn't have any credit products. It's a good, you know, debit, debit kind of card product, checking account product. But at some point you want to have a, a different kind of account and maybe a larger credit capability. You want to get a mortgage for your house. So there is a, a natural upgrade path, if you will, as you change the faces of your life and you have different needs and requirements at that at those points. At the same time, we, we're not interested in saying, hey, drop, I mean, churning, if you will, removing your primary bank or credit union and going to bank mobile is not as simple as just switching a mobile operator with a SIM card, you know, and a phone number for porting. You got to switch your utilities and your bills and your direct deposit. There's all there's a there's stuff to do. So we're creating a lot of tools that allow you to do that, but we want fundamentally to earn the position as your primary bank, and we're not forcing you because that's the only way you can join with us. So a lot of our customers have chosen this bank, but they still have a second bank or maybe even a primary bank. And our goal with the new platform that we're launching in, um, yeah, I would say five weeks from now, maybe six weeks, possibly four weeks, is to create such a great product as well as such a great experience for, for our customers that they go, wow, I really think I could use this as my primary bank. I love that. So do you think then the core differentiator between this and you know the, the typical establishment is that because you went completely mobile first, you have a much, almost you eliminate the overhead of the infrastructure so that you're able to then use this capital to have better user benefits. Would you say that's kind of that, the core model differentiator? I think there's a few, few of them. A lot of people respond to the fact that we don't charge any fees. We don't even charge overdraft fees when you overdraft. And we have opportunities if you do a direct deposit or any kind of deposit, you can just eliminate all ATM fees in the United States. So there's a lot of people compelled by that. There's a lot of people compelled by the mobile first uh, and, and and the experience, and hopefully we'll be more compelled by it as we move to our new platform. There's even a huge amount of people that 
actually are very blown away by our call center and our customer service uh, representatives because we know that when there's a problem, you don't really have a branch to walk into. So we have a, a very high NPS rating, if you will, and, 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 and very focused on great customer service. You have first call resolution. That is like a, one of our differentiators as well. So I think that the combination of a number of these things is going to be the answer for a lot of people. Can it just be like one of those things? If we lose sight of the fact that there could be a problem and you want to talk to a real person then and just believe the technology is going to save us, then we're, we're being a bit short-sighted, I think. So in your experience and being all over the world and experiencing mobile banking in all these different areas, uh, you have a very you know, well-rounded perspective of how people are adopting in these different areas and, you know, being here in the U.S. now and, and seeing how people are adopting to it. Given the changes that you're making with Bank Mobile, what do you see the future being? Where do you see mobile banking being in the future and some of the, the you know, maybe far-term features or experiences that you think uh, are interesting that might come about? Well, I think from a United States perspective, the table stakes concept, you know, of a checking account, a savings account, and maybe an overdraft line of credit, the basic things that you need to get stuff done in your life are going to be so commoditized or commodified, if you will, at some point that, that mobile provide that as long as everybody has the capability to give you the checks you need and the debit card support and stuff like that. So I have a feeling that the, the branch bank as a as a walk-in place for your first checking account is probably going to go away very, very quickly. In some parts of the world, it's gone away completely. In Kenya, for example, nobody even cares about a checking account because they use these Mpesa telco products for money storage and money movement and payment of their bills and stuff. Uh, in places like the Philippines, I worked for a few years um, as a director of, a, of one of the banks there doing loans. There's 6,800 islands, so you can't even get around to do things there. Uh, I mean, especially during the storms, et cetera, you need mobile access to provide also loans for individuals to be able to buy produce for their stores. So I have a feeling that in different markets, the advanced capabilities of a mobile device, as well as the trust people place in it, will be very, very, very different. But the, the table stakes parts, like a checking account or money movement capabilities, insurance for your savings, that will probably be more and more virtualized over time as people get comfortable with just that as a channel. I remember going to Rwanda where, in comparison to Tanzania, if you just advertise a mobile banking product on a billboard, everybody buys it in Tanzania. They think it's great. They think it's fantastic. They want to cop Kenya. They love technology. Go cool. You walk like 400 kilometers next door into, into Rwanda and nobody buys it unless they hear it from their 10 best friends first and they start to trust it from their village and then they start to maybe consider doing it. So every market's going to have its different kind of pain points for how much is too much. And the United States is still to be, to be determined, I think. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah, thank you for that, for that insight. And that kind of rounds out our course segment here. And I got some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Sure. All right. So Dan, if you had to define innovation, how would you define innovation? I think innovation is a great term. I'm kind of believing these days it's overused. Right. Kind of like this term partnership, you know, this term partnership, a lot of suppliers and vendors call their customers partners. And I'm thinking, really, is what is partnership then? You know, I mean, am I a partner with Microsoft because I use Microsoft Excel or do I just use the software? You know, I'm not sure. So I have a feeling that innovation is a bit overused, especially in the hype of fintech investments these days. And I do believe that I believe and I aspire to try to do innovation in a way that is actually a bit more transformative. So if you think about 
for example, mobile phones, you know, I mean, when you had a mobile phone and you didn't have a fixed line phone, you could actually fundamentally do something different. You could actually be at a different location and get a call instead of being tied to a physical location, you know, or SMS, you know, texting. I mean, before that came out, there was no really way to do asynchronous communication in a text fashion between devices. Uh, so that really changed how we thought about our products and our services and how to deal with communication. So I kind of think that real innovation is doing something that is fundamentally taking a step forward or a step sideways and not just incremental kind of um, better capabilities or UI. So I'd like to kind of hold it to a higher standard, if you will. Gotcha. And then, you know, being that you've been involved with so many pivots throughout your career, uh, would you put more emphasis on the idea or the execution of the idea? And then how would you weight each with a percentage and why? I think that there's a, a lot of people that have a lot of ideas and they, and they believe that uh, those ideas are uh, inherently and uh, epistemologically valuable. I believe that that opinion is reinforced by your United States Patents and Trademarks Office for patenting ideas. Mm-hmm. I still think that great and innovative ideas require protection as well as uh, uh, support within especially larger organizations that need to f- sort of facilitate innovation, if you will. Uh, otherwise, they get kind of old and, and decrepit. But I do believe that the key is really uh, execution. And I hate to say it because I'm not the hugest fan of, of Apple, but that's exactly what they did so very effectively. Execute in a way that was so much more unique and differentiated and attractive to people, technologies that were kind of innovated uh, in different markets and different countries. So uh, I think execution is the trick to success. Innovation is the trick to legacy and possibly uh, patent infringement lawsuits. <laughs> so if you had to apply a percentage to, to idea and execution, how would you weigh them? Well, it depends on the market you're in. In our market, Bank Mobile, it's all execution. We've got some fantastic and phenomenal ideas. And if they never see the light of the day, then it's going to be a shame because our business is about putting that technology and those services into consumers' hands. It's not about creating ideas and then licensing them out to other entities. So I would say that uh, I would say it's probably 80% execution and 20% um, innovation or ideas. If you have it 100% execution, then you lose sight of kind of what you're doing and how and why and what the trends are. And if it's weighted the other way, you're just basically being an academic. Yeah. And uh, this guest I had yesterday had this quote when I asked her this question. It was kind of funny. An idea without execution is just a hallucination. I thought that was kind of interesting. True. Or PowerPoint. Yeah, or PowerPoint. And then, uh, so what has been your biggest learning lesson uh, in your journey in fintech so far? Yeah, so a little bit alluding to what I talked about in Rwanda, you know, like I believe that at some point, if you created such a great product and there was such a, a gap, you know, there was such a niche that needed to be filled because people didn't have this access to, to financial services. If you created a technology or, or positioned a technology perfectly, that it would be a home run immediately. In that market, Rwanda, after the genocide, after the, the tribal issues, as well as the lack of trust between governmental and, and, and business institutions uh, and the cultural environment that they're in, we needed to actually think of a way to humanize and make very clear what you get with these services instead of just providing the market and thinking people would pick them up. So I was very humbled and, and learned a lot by going out into that country, up country, finding people, talking to them about what really um, they thought about these things and what the value was in their life. So one size fits all is absolutely not the way this world um, 
this world functions. I'll give you another anecdote actually about this. USSD, which is like a text-based banking system, right? Huh? Fantastic, great. You could do menus, choose different things. It's a fantastic thing. I went to to China, even testified in front of the telecommunications uh, regulator in China about USSD. And the reality is that the Chinese language is actually double the character sets. So the maximum text characters you can send in Chinese is like 60, 64 or something. So it's very, very hard to do something in a very complicated language with a mobile phone if you don't use a mobile app. So I don't know, you got you to gotta look at each market differently, the dynamics. And, um, and that's a lesson I had to learn by doing it instead of just thinking about it. And then how about, you know, your favorite business related book? My favorite business related book, actually, and I think this is going to be a strange thing, by the way, to to hear. <laughs> okay. There's a book um, by David Quammen, who's a naturalist. Uh, he's just a nature writer, and he's been a nature writer for National Geographic and for Outdoor Magazine, I think, for decades. Fantastic guy. The book's called Song of the Dodo. Song of the and Dodo? It, it Song of the Dodo. Okay. And it's a nature book. It's about him investigating the extinction of the dodo and what that meant and how. And the whole concept of the book is island biogeography, which is if you have a small environment and you have an extreme relationship, for example, uh, you introduce rodents and rats to Mauritius, uh, where the dodos live, and the dodos can't fly, you basically have an extinction level event. So introduction of things can be very radically uh, interpreted or, or digested by local populations. However, this thesis, of course, is that if you combine and you have uh, a large enough environment that also includes maybe bridges to different uh, uh, environments that they're doing in the crop, this across Europe as well as in the United States, trying to create uh, connections between these ecosystems, then you actually get an exponential diversity in connecting these e ecosystems. And, and the, well, the reason I say it's a business-related book is that I learned a lot about how you can connect and uh, live through the connections with other ecosystems and other markets and other and other environments that you really thought were a completely different, doing a completely different thing than you were doing. And over time, that diversity will actually bring you health in your decision making as well as your your capabilities to deliver products and services. That's that's really what I took out of it. It's a fantastic book. It has nothing to do with business, but. It is a very unique way to look at business opportunity and growth. No, I completely agree. So when I went to college, I actually was a pre-med major and went to business right after school. So spent five years in science, in medical before switching to, to business. And what gave me the edge in business, I think, is just understanding the living organism that is business and the interdependent relationships of things within the organism. And I remember in my past uh, reading a lot about Charles Darwin and him being a scientist and really an entrepreneur where his father didn't want him to go and pursue this, but he ended up just jumping on a ship and pursuing this and running all these experiments to figure out, you know, what is the thing that leads to evolution and references innovation. And so um, I think there are a lot of similarities to, to that way of thinking and, and how that relates to business. So I totally agree with you. And then, of course, there's Alfred Russell Wallace, who kind of did the same thing, but it was on his own dime. That's the scrubby country to country, uh, work as you go version of uh, evolutionary Darwinism. I think that uh, having to learn it by trudging through the muck uh, also is a fantastic um, lesson learned in business. So how about uh, your favorite digital resource? Something that you tap into to, to get information on a regular basis? 
That's a good question. I mean, uh, there's a lot of banking resources that I think are uh, kind of critical to me in terms of innovation and banking right now. Not not necessarily because they deliver a lot of great information, but they deliver a lot of anecdotal focus. You know, everybody's talking about blockchain and Bitcoin and what that means or disruption. So I think that to a certain extent, it's really handy to to have a couple of these kind of blogs and resources that that can tell you what all the other major banks are thinking about or what the government is thinking about in this way. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of the tech blogs that are more readable, you know, like um, uh, TechCrunch and things like that, because they also give you a, a lot of information and knowledge uh, outside of your core business focus, you know. And I, so I like a couple of those things. I used to use Slashdot for that kind of stuff back in the day. And I do very much appreciate a couple of the very focused blogs that are very um, uh, forward thinking, like uh, Brian Krebs and Krebs on Security thinking about the impacts of all this stuff, but also digging deep into the dark web and other areas that uh, we don't normally get exposure to. Uh, apart from that, I'm kind of a generalist and a little bit too busy to digest stuff in the way I would like to. And so lastly, your favorite mobile app and why? I don't know. I think one of the secret secrets that I've got is that I'm a pretty decent user. I am not a mobile geek. And I take that as a badge of pride because... You got to have an app that's so usable and so sexy for me to actually start using it a lot. Yeah. I have to say that the communications apps that I use that are very alternative, if you will, like WhatsApp and uh, these other kind of uh, low barrier to entry apps keep me in touch with a huge amount of people in markets that don't necessarily have access to smartphones, et cetera. So I like mobile as a way to believe, even though I'm back in the United States now with my family and it's a wonderful environment that I live in, but I'm like a... Stone's throw away from all the friends and, and, and colleagues that I've met in all the countries that I worked in. So communication apps, I think, in various forms, because you can't say one or two or three, because I got four communications apps for these countries and two communications apps for this country. So I'd like to kind of make a category and not a, an actual app, you know? Yeah, gotcha. Okay. You know, I want to want to make sure that everyone can follow you and, and check out what you're working on. So uh, what's the coolest thing you're working on right now that you want everyone to uh, follow and check out well yeah that's the new app you know um uh, we're involved in a couple patent proposals for the ui of this app actually we totally changed a number of things that nobody's ever done before in banking apps like a have checking account register that is completely different and provides huge amounts of information as well as actions so you don't just see 20 bucks in 20 bucks out but you can See all the categorization, all the memos and voice memos. You can make PDFs for your employer. You can get re that's a pile of stuff we're doing. That is the I hope it's maybe a step ahead of uh, a lot of our other colleagues in the banking business. We also don't care how you pay people. You just pay people or receive money. So instead of doing bill pay or sending P2P payments or making a routing number payment, whatever. We've totally abstracted that to try to make it a very different experience. You just have to say, I want to move this money to this Comcast or I want to move it to this person and don't have to worry about the details. So hopefully that and how we've designed it is going to be well accepted by a lot of people, uh, our existing customers as well as new customers. So that's the coolest thing I'm working on. I can't point anybody to it right now because it is coming out uh, in four to six weeks. I would hope that people would check it out maybe, stay tuned and uh, and see if it uh, uh, could be impactful to their lives. Yeah, so by the time this episode airs, it'll probably be out. So we're looking at probably mid-December that this episode would air. So we'll have everyone go check it out. So what would be the place to go check that out? 
I would go to bankmobile.com. That's exactly where it's going to be. And it will be definitely be in market by the time this comes out if it's mid-December. So absolutely. Well, awesome. All right. So go check out bankmobile.com. And Dan, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yep. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Now that we have some insight into the company Bank Mobile, next I'm sitting down with Loveline Sidhu, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Bank Mobile. So that will be part two of our two-part series of Bank Mobile. Get a little bit different perspective into the company. We'll dig into how mobile has enabled their mission and improved the banking experience as a whole in the industry and how the elections impacted the mobile banking market and Loveline's hopes in the coming administration, these changes that are taking place uh, in this administration. Also, we'll discuss the things she's excited about in the near future for mobile banking. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit emergemobilefirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first. Oh,